Yeah. That's good stuff. That's why I paid $50 for that five-year license. I wish I could give a shout-out to the band, but I guess I don't have to. That's the point of the license. <laughs> um, I'll put a link, or not a link, but a, a, just a note on the show notes on the artist. It's a cool song. And it was fun. That, that's the first thing I did, or one of the first things I did. When I started this podcast, I said, let me figure out how to get theme music. And I use this website, which I'll also dig up what it is and uh, put the note there for you. But it was cool. You search based, you know, it's like you do a Google search basically of what kind of vibe you want. And you get to choose instrumental or with lyrics. And it's pretty much that simple. And you sign a document and get to use it for five years. All right, I cheated. I just paused and I looked it up. The company where I got the license from is called 411 Music Group. I don't know how I found them. I just Googled podcast theme song stuff, ended up on them. And the artist is, well, I guess the artist would be Blood Buzz, B-L-U-D, B-U-Z-Z. Not the normal spelling of blood, obviously. And the song is Brand New Rhythm, spelled normally. Don't ask me how to spell the word rhythm off the top of my head. What is it? R-H-Y-T-H-M? How do you spell rhythm? Rhythm. R-H-Y-T-H-M. That's right. Is that what I said? I think that's right. Wow. Anyway. Just going to blast through a Thanksgiving bonus episode for us all. And before I start, I want to say that I really am thankful for each and every one of you who listens. You know, there's not a tremendous audience for this show at this point, but there is an audience. And uh, it's really cool, and it's really meaningful, and it's exactly what I hoped it might be when I started the podcast. And look, I'm in the last year of law school Uh, I work full-time, I go to school part-time, so therefore it's been a four-year law degree program instead of the regular three-year program for for me, and so I'm in my fourth and final year. I've got exams coming up in two weeks for three classes. I'm in jurisprudence, which I've talked about a bunch on the show, which not only am I getting a regular jurisprudence class, but in fact, it's not a regular jurisprudence class. In fact, it's a very different kind of jurisprudence class. I say that because we're getting critical race theory in heavy doses, in heavy doses in that class, and that's not typical. And so I'm fortunate, I'm so lucky to where I can say I actually understand critical race theory on a pretty pretty good level. And I mean the actual legal framework of critical race theory, like actually what it is. So I feel very blessed in that sense to where I have, I feel like I've already seen behind the curtain of the stage and everyone else is just in the audience talking about it. And it's like, well, 
Is that that's not right? That's not what critical race theory is. Well, that is that's right. That's what it is. So, I am going to talk about critical race theory on this episode, um, and that's going to be the beef of it, actually. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run through two or three quick bullet points that I just want to get off my chest. And then I'm going to take the opportunity on this episode to just give a overview of what critical race theory is. Again, I've done it a few times, but I, I got a lot of sleep last night, which I sorely needed. And I feel like I'm in a good mood and I want to take the opportunity to give everyone a bird's eye view of what critical race theory actually is. So we can walk away from this episode a bit more informed. And I say that with humility. And I only say it because I'm actually learning it. I've like spent a whole semester learning it from an incredible professor. So I have exams in two weeks. One of them is jurisprudence, where I'm getting the critical. Uh, the other ones are employment law, which is fantastic. Fantastic. And the other one is criminal procedure, just which is a heavy duty. Well, not so much a heavy duty, but a you know, a classic law class. So I've got those exams, and then I'll be taking a winter break, as everyone does. Then I'll be back for one more semester, and then the bar exam. So wish me luck. So that's what's going on in my, my world. There's got, I've got work. You know, I'm a construction manager for a fantastic company. Great company, an apartment builder build large apartment complexes. And it's just great. The people are great. And it's just a good situation by day. And then by night, I have law school. So, And I'm in a great relationship right now. I'm actually going to her house. I got to get out of here in about two hours and have Thanksgiving dinner with her family. And they're great. So it's all good. I mean, I if you had asked me a year ago, would I be feeling good on Thanksgiving? I would have said probably not. So that's what's going on in my life. Oh, one other thing. Unfortunately, my dad found out that he looks like he has a cancer on the tongue. My dad's a very active, very healthy 70-year-old man who loves life, and he's a composer and an artist and does all these things. And he and I share the same birthday, and we have a lot in common, so um, it's an interesting relationship and a good relationship. And so he was freaking out because this one doctor said, oh, I don't like what I see. I'm not liking what I'm seeing. Just sent him home in a panic. And so he went to this other specialist. He was able to sneak in through a friend of a friend, you know, that kind of thing. You know, when, you, when you're fortunate, you get, you know somebody, and money's not going to be a problem. And so he was fortunate to see the specialist yesterday who gave him a tremendous amount of confidence and said, you're not going to die of this. This is common. We see this all the time. We're going to treat this. You are not going to die of this. So my dad had spent the night before preparing to, <laughs> preparing to die, as he tells me. Um, so thank God. Thank God. But scary, right? And so it reminds you of the impermanence of life. And it hits you hard on this Thanksgiving. 
so my dad is uh he's alone uh at this point right now in his life he's got a lot of friends where he's living but um he's not in a relationship at this time so he's going to spend today thanksgiving uh working the phones for the crisis hotline center in his community that's something he enjoys doing so god bless dad i love you thank thank god we got this better update so thanksgiving yeah i mean headed over to the girl's house and like i said a year ago i never would have predicted that those words would have come out of my mouth but i'm feeling good i'm feeling grateful life is not perfect but generally the health is so important for so long you kind of live in this bubble of no one's got any health problems until they do and you got to be thankful for each day and you got to seize life and that's really what drives self-improvement i think it's what drives i don't know what does drive us i don't know but certainly you need to keep in mind this this death thing gosh we're lucky man we're lucky each day we have our health i guess that's all i'm saying Hmm. So, oh yeah, I wrote cooking class. Last note on Thanksgiving before I jump into critical race theory. For my birthday, my girlfriend surprised me and I was like, what is this? Come on, what could the surprise be from three to seven? We're going to be gone from three to seven. It's local. What the hell could it be? Are we going axe? For some reason, I got fixated in my mind. She's taking me axe throwing? Like, that would be, like, I don't know. Is that what 30, young 30-year-olds 30 do? I've never been to those bars where you throw axes. Eh. I don't know why. I said, what could she be doing with me? Are we doing an escape room? Three to seven? We're going to be gone to three to seven? Three to seven. And so she ended up taking me to a cooking class. Super, super cool. Oh, my God. It was us and two other couples. It was supposed to be three other couples, four total, but one bailed. So it was three of three couples, six of us, and a, the super cool chef and her assistant. And we made incredible French food. We made this incredible French pastries. And of course, they make you like they do it for you. Basically, you can't screw it up. But it was amazing industrial kitchen, right? And you're making these pastries and then you do the chicken and you're making all the sauces and you're making the salad and you're making everything. And you're poaching these eggs. Is that the word? Yeah, poaching these eggs and serving them right on top of your salad. And it's just like, this is the best meal I've ever had. And I was a part of making it. So, feeling grateful. Love you, baby. Okay. You want to know what critical race theory is? Once and for all. You got five minutes? All right, then pull up a chair. Let's do it. Critical race theory. This term. First, I guess, let's pause for a second and think, what does it mean to you? What does critical race theory mean to you? You hear it in various contexts at this point. Fox News, deriding it, MSNBC, 
defending it, saying, you know, basically defending it, right? What does it mean to you? Tell you what it is, straight up. Critical race theory is an idea, is a theory that says this. It says, although the country has made great strides, like in the civil rights movement in the 60s, where you might say that all the laws became neutral on the books. We fixed everything. We recognized, wow, these laws were racist, period. And so we fixed that. And over the years, with Supreme Court decisions that have been favorable to LGBTQ plus uh, communities such as Oberfell, gay marriage, uh, Roe versus Wade, abortion. And I don't mean to say that women are part of the LGBTQ community, but what I meant to say is you have these Supreme Court decisions that seem to be promoting equality in the sense of, hey, if you're a human being and you're a citizen, you're going to be protected by the laws of the United States. So if you're a woman, you know, we're going to say it's the law that you get to decide what you're going to do with your life and your body based on constitutional rights that, you know, they're questionable because the court, it's one of those situations where Roe versus Wade and its follow-up case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, which uh, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the amazing opinion. In those two cases that make up the current precedent on abortion, which I wholeheartedly agree with, you had the court vindicating rights for women and saying, number one priority is Woman gets, to, woman gets to participate in society as fully as she damn well pleases. That seemed to be the case with Oberfell, with the gay marriage case. Two men, two women want to get married. They're going to be able to do that in the United States of America now. So you seem to, so those kind of cases sprinkled on top of this baseline that was set in the 60s with these facially neutral laws fixing those laws that used to be straight-up racist on their face. You have many people in society who are walking around, you know, saying, look, nothing's perfect, but we got a pretty good country, we got a good situation going on. The racism is, sure, racism exists, you know, to this day, hopefully less than it did, but institutionally, systematically, no, not at this point. We flushed that out. It's 2021. Um, we've got different problems today. Got problems, but we've got different problems. Criticalist comes along and says, Sir, ma'am, you, they, they, whatever, you know, respectfully, whatever your pronoun is. And that's not a, a joke, you know, that's the world we're living in today. That's the culture I'm being exposed to being in school. Again, is this is serious. Taking, you know, we don't say boyfriend and girlfriend anymore. We say partner. 
because it's more gender inclusive. But anyway, I digress. We, we live in this country where most people are saying, look, the laws are on their books, non-racist these days. That's been the case since the 60s. That struggle was fought. It was won. We got different problems today. Racism exists, yes, but not, not institutionally, right? So let's move past that. And we're, we're already in. And this is kind of where I was at the beginning of this class. I walked in just like that. I said, I understand race is a, like, is a thing. I grew up in a house raised by the most liberal dad, the most active dad, the most well-read dad, with compassion, you know, and empathy tattooed on my heart from an early age. So don't think that I don't have that. But I've just been skeptical and perhaps incredibly ignorant. I've been living this life, and I walked into class thinking, no, we're already at this 21st century multicultural America um, not to say race no longer matters, but it, it kind of no longer matters in that way. That's the traditionalist view. The critical race theorist comes along and says, Brian, my friend, let's grab a cup of coffee and let's talk. And while we're sipping the coffee, he says, look, I've got this theory, Brian, and I want to, if your mind is open to it, I want to I wanna run it by you. And I say, okay, hit me. And he says, this is, the, this is my theory. It's called critical race theory. And it basically asks you to do this, Brian. Play a game with me. What if society today, even though everything is neutral on the books, is actually still racist in effect, in impact? What if you only really notice it if you're one of those impacted communities? like people of color. Okay. Sit with that for a second. Okay, I'm with you. So you, he says, Brian, if that's true, if that could be true, then think about the implications. That means that all these structures that we have in our country that seem to what I would call the insider groups, to be frank, white people, they don't realize that it's a problem because to them it's just neutrality. But to the black community, the impact is so disproportionate. And you can run through the history of our country, incarceration, police brutality, and so on. Poverty, redlining, I mean, the criticalist says, first of all, how's your coffee? Is it warm enough? Do we need to get a, a little heater up for you? But he says, look, Brian, what if I told you, like in that ESPN voice, doo, doo, doo. what if I told you that society today is not as egalitarian as you think it is. It's really only egalitarian for you. What if I told you that all these systems that you think are totally neutral and objective actually result in oppression? And you say, wow, okay. So, for example, 
you take police policing. What if me think, do I want to go into the policing example right away? Because I'm giving you this bird's eye, right? Let me back up for a second. So the conversation with critical race theory starts by saying, is it possible that, okay, I'll be more frank. I'm trying to be diplomatic about it. Critical race theory itself says, step number one, society is racist. And if you're not ready for that, if, you're not, if, you, if, if it's not presented well to you, you might be allergic to it. And you might end up having the Ted Cruz reaction, you know, critical race theory is going to undermine our society. I mean, I'm joking, but. So, you, so you're saying to me, what is critical race theory, Brian? You're not doing a great job of explaining it. Let me, let me fix that. I'm going to bring it home. Ready? Critical race theory can be broken up into a few separate parts. Part number one, society is racist, formally called anti-objectivity. Objectivity, like a white person might think to themselves, oh, you know, the police, they're acting reasonably. That's what we, society, I, expect a cop to do. In that situation. So the result, however sad and tragic it is, if it resulted in a black person getting killed, well, shoot, you know, that's a tragedy. But the traditionalists would say, look, the burden is on the person of color in that situation to understand how to behave. It's intense stuff, okay? This is intense stuff. The critical, criticalist says, look, that's racist. For you to expect the black community who has a totally different relationship with the law enforcement community than white people do, to have that same standard of conduct applied is racist and it is killing black people. Now, let's sit with that for a second. So big picture, critical race theory says step one, anti-objectivity. The system is racist even though you think it's neutral. And I gave you the policing example, which is very intense and very heart-wrenching, but it's a very very potent example, right, of anti-objectivity. A regular, regular white guy, and I mean that respectfully, I don't mean to be tossing around racial terms, but I'm trying to have fun with this. A white guy might think to himself, hey, that standard of conduct that the police officer, look, that's the standard, and if that's what happened, then darn it, that's a freaking tragedy. Critical race theory says, no, it is not fair for that standard to be applied to the police officer in that case. So step one is anti-objectivity. And step two is, what are we going to do about it? So step one, 
is anti-objectivity, and the easy way to remember it is society is racist. Step two is deconstruction and reconstruction, and the easy way to say it is, what are we going to do about it? So I hate to be repeating myself, but I really want you to take away what I've taken away from class, from jurisprudence, which is, again, step one in critical race theory, anti-objectivity. Society is racist. You got to eat that pill and swallow it. Step two, deconstruction and reconstruction. What are we going to do about it? Deconstruction is a judge writing in her or his or their opinion. Okay, here's the thing. Whereas a traditionalist judge would, in their opinion, use legal rules and traditional precedents and all the things that a lawyer would traditionally expect in the Constitution, and they would be using all these touchstones to base their opinion off of and to, and to come at their conclusion, their judgment. Whereas a criticalist is saying, instead of all those basic legal concepts that normally would be referred to, I'm going to talk about the outsider community that this law affected. And so by weaving in the outsider community in her discussion of why the law is bad, instead of the traditional legal touchstones, what that does is that says to the, the world and the country, you know, the legal touchstones, the traditional legal touchstones are less important than these outsider communities that are affected by the laws. And so that's the deconstruction. It's this law is bad because look what it's done to this community. Let's look through the eyes of this community. So that's why we say critical race, cr critical race theory is like putting on a pair of glasses that allows you to see. And then the reconstruction is, okay, we're now going to, this is heavy, this is a lot of stuff if you really think about it. The reconstruction is we're now going to enable the judge to make policy, no question about it. Whereas it might be a little hiding the ball in traditionalist theory. They want, to, they want you to think the legislature is leading the way. Criticalist says, forget all that. That is all the oppression system. That is the oppression system. The traditionalist model is the oppression system, right? And so therefore, we're going to abandon all of that in our opinion, and we're going to tell you what the law should be based on the values and the experiences and the needs and the rights of this particular community. And what becomes most controversial, I think, about critical race theory is in this reconstruction part where the judge can now do what the civil rights legislation made explicitly illegal and the judge can say, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to target, wrong word, I'm going to boost people of color. I'm going to boost women. I'm going to boost Asian Americans. I'm going to boost members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, whether it's affirmative action or definite quotas that says, you know, companies need to have this amount of LGBTQ people or, you know, whatever. This reconstruction in its most controversial form 
which is called the asymmetrical model, meaning we're not going to treat people the same, which is the most controversial, right? You have asymmetrical, symmetrical, and hybrid. But you can imagine asymmetrical getting the most attention because it says, given all this racism in society, we are going to, we must boost African Americans. We must create a separate standard of police interaction for black people. Think about that. Is that what we want to do? Do we want to take into account the unique relationship that the black community has had with the policing community? And do we want to tailor laws specifically, standards specifically to that set of interactions as opposed to having one standard for all citizens. That's one example. Affirmative action in education is another example. Is, do we like affirmative action? Uh, there's strong arguments for affirmative action, in my opinion, especially given college, uh, college's history of legacy programs. I think there's a real argument there that um, that amounts to an exclusion system. If, if done improperly, the college admissions process. So I like affirmative action because I'm really sensitive to education. I want everyone to get an education. So one other example of critical race theory might be, um, gosh, let's see. You got policing, you got college admissions. I mean, you can apply it to any, any situation. Um, God, let me pick one out of my, you know what, like the right to own guns. Okay. Second amendment stuff is given the gun violence in communities of color and the disparity of the perspective on guns between different communities in different parts of the country, should we, should we apply different standards? Well, first, should we, should we have a different national standard? Should we get rid of the Second Amendment? Because, look, that's the easiest way to fix the problem in Chicago. And I'm speaking totally ignorantly, I have to admit. But I hope you know where I'm, my heart is and where I'm coming from, right? Or do you tailor something state by state, but that would violate the Second Amendment, right? You have Heller, 2008 case that says you have the right, individuals, citizens have the right to keep and bear arms in their home for self-defense. So you have that problem. And so the criticalist says, look, we got to get rid of that precedent. We got to nuke the Second Amendment because that's the way to fix the problem. And the traditionalist says, no, the problem is in the communities. you got to fix that problem. And so where do you put the blame? Very hard stuff. I'll wrap up by saying I have always been and continue to be a firm believer that given the depth of the wound of slavery, 
it's likely the case that there is still some healing to do. And that healing, you know, what do we got to do to do? I'm kind of of the mind, like, what do we have to do to bring about that healing? So in a sense, I was already a critical race theorist because I'm all about solutions and helping people. So to a large degree, I think a lot of the problem about critical race theory is communications and messaging. But there is this fundamental core philosophical question of, do you think it is appropriate to have race-conscious policies today? It gets to the reconstruction part of critical race theory. That's where the spikes come out. It's like, are we really going to say that we want to get rid of the Second Amendment because of the gun violence in inner cities? Are we really going to say that we're going to change how we fundamentally approach policing in this country because of um, the fact that in 2020, 28% of all killings done by police, the person killing person killed was a person of color, 28% in that same year, 13 black people made up only 13% of the country. So 13% of the population comprises 28% of deaths from police violence. And I don't read into those stats more than they are, and I don't dismiss them for what they are. That's a heavy, that's a heavy imbalance. And so we have to wrestle with this, and we have to figure out the solution. So I came into this class like, progressive thinking guy, right? Like, but when you study critical race theory, there are some things that are controversial. And in some sense, I look at them as bargaining chips. Like if you're really looking into this in good faith, it's like, okay, that's provocative and it gets me to think, but then it wants me to, that's the asymmetrical model, but then it wants me to really come back to the hybrid model and say, no, we can change the standard for everybody that will have the positive effect on the community that's being affected disproportionately. On one hand, it's complicated stuff. On the other hand, it really isn't. Do you think society is racist today or not? And do you think, and what are you willing to do about it if you think it is? How far are you willing to go? Do we need, do we need to Look, having race-conscious policies, these affirmative actions, now you got to check the box. What race are you? All these things. The conservatives actually want to say, let's be colorblind. Justice is colorblind. You know, forget these boxes. It's just America, citizen, you're either a patriot or you're not. And the critical race theory is bringing up this identity politics, frankly. It really is. I personally believe that the identity politics comes from the left. And at the end of the day, for me, the question is, is it in good faith or not? Is the identity politics that is inherently part of critical race theory morally good? Are they telling me something that I need to hear and that we all need to hear and that we need to act on to bring you know, people get equity, equality, look, to bring about justice. Let's just call it justice. I'm open. My ears are open to justice. 
But the question remains, are we at a point in society where race no longer matters? Right? Or are a whole lot of us missing something really important that's staring us in the face? And are we, in fact, unwittingly denying our brothers and sisters of America justice? That's what critical race theory asks you to ask yourself. All right, guys, that's all I got time for. I got a skedaddle. Hope you have a great turkey day and count your blessings. I'm going to do that today. Grateful for this uh, attitude that I woke up with. I think it has something to do with my 11-hour slumber. Don't expect it next week. Later, y'all.